it's my pleasure to introduce my uh, friends, and many of you know them as well, Troy and Jackie Tishammer, who will be giving the message for today. Right on. It's great to be with you guys this morning. Um, let me just pray for us as we jump into our time in the Word. Um, Jesus, thanks that your presence is here with us. Thanks that you're here with us and leading us in worship, God. Um, thanks for that, that you're with us in our communion with each other and with you and with your spirit, God. And thanks that um, you're with us in our offering as well. Um, so Jesus, we just pray that you would make us aware of your presence and your spirit, that you'd speak to us, open our hearts and our minds as we look to your word um, and help us to hear it and be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'm Troy. Uh, this is my wife, Jackie. You get to hear from both of us this morning, so two for the price of one, right? Uh, so uh, we're, we're part of this church, um, but we're also missionaries sent out by this church uh, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, so we're grateful to be here. Uh, normally, we're usually right there, so it's different just being up here today. <laughs> but uh, we're grateful to be here, um, and it's, it's uh, it, we're, yeah, Glad to fill in while Pastor Jim and Lisa are in Israel. Um, well, as you guys think about this week, maybe it felt pretty normal compared to the pri previous week, the prior week. Um, as, as it was an interesting week, right? Pretty abnormal in a lot of ways. Um, I, know, I know my parents probably hosted half of you uh, in, in their house. We had students coming through. Uh, we had staff, our, our whole staff team, their power was out. So we had people showering at our house and people working in our living room every day. Um, it was an interesting couple of a uh, few days. Um, as we think about disasters and circumstances like that, I think it draws out the best and the worst in us. Um, the last time we went through the fires, um, a couple years ago, we, we actually as a staff team had, in, had another person from another ministry that works with disaster relief come and give us some training. Um, and one of the things they talked with us through is the timeline um, of kind of how a community goes through disaster. Um, and after the initial shock of a disaster, often there's what they call a hero period. Um, in disaster recovery, which, which kind of like a community, that's the time when, when there's stories of all these powerful, really good community things. People are reaching out and being hospitable and generous. Um, and there's just a sense of like, oh yeah, we came together as a community. Um, and there's something in us that wants to rise to the occasion of the, the disaster and the hurt and the pain. Um, and and that, that, that's, it's a really pretty cool and beautiful moment, this hero period. But the, the trouble is, is often right after that period, it just drops off and we forget and we return to normal. Um, and especially the people that have been really deeply impacted are just forgotten right away. Um, so even our best aspirations kind of just trickle out pretty quick. Um, and on the other hand, it reveals some of the worst in us when we turn in on ourselves and become focused on ourselves um, and, and ruled by fear. Um, I was, this wasn't even during the fires. It was before that, during the first power shutoff. I was at a grocery store, and as I was leaving, there was a woman on her phone, um, and, and she was just kind of like yelling and cussing and, and was like, oh, the guy in front of me bought all the dry ice. Um, and she was just so angry and fearful. Um, and it was this moment for me that I was like, it, how, how quickly, how fragile our lives are in a sense, and how quickly do we turn to focusing on ourselves and being ruled by fear? And I couldn't blame her. Um, I think the whole community kind of felt that tension 
and anxiety, especially after a couple years ago that was so dramatic. Um, so it's just, the, it, it reveals sometimes the worst in us, so the, the stuff that's right under the surface of this fragile, kind of superficial, like what's, what, what we are um, or what we show to the world. So what about you? As you think back, it might feel like ages ago now, um, but two weeks ago, what did it bring out in you? Was it a sense of anxiety um, or fear? Or was there a mix? Was it also generosity and trust? Uh, for us, you, that's a little bit of our situation, and, and we enjoyed it at first. We were grateful for the opportunity to invite people in and to care for people. And actually, it was, there was some fun even in hosting people and being together. Um, but it was only a few days before we were like, why are we so tired? <laughs> we are so tired. Um, and we were looking at our, our, our staff. We were with them. We were like, we really like them. We've spent every hour of, the <laughs> of all of these days with them. <laughs> we're like, oh my goodness. Um, and, and it showed me this moment of like, there's moments like this where I wish I was drawing from a deeper reservoir in myself. That I'm like, oh, is that all it took to tire me out? Just a couple days? Man, I wish I was drawing from a deeper place. Um, when can I go back to being selfish? <laughs> like, it just focused on myself was the sense, you know? Uh, but, but I think there's a sense for me of like, what, what would it take for us to actually be transformed in a way that when we're pressed, the things that come out of us are like these lasting good and virtuous things. And not, it's not just a thin veneer on the top of like what's going on underneath, a sense of self-focus and tiredness, or whatever it is. Um, as we talk with our students on campus, a resource that has been really helpful for us as we talk about that kind of transformation has been this book called A Good and Beautiful God. Um, it's the first in a, book, in a series of three, but one of the core uh, ideas of this book, um, and there's a slide if you want to throw that up there, um, one of the core ideas is this, of this book is that we don't become more like Jesus by trying really hard. Um, the, the, that's actually the, the other one. <laughs> That's the next one we'll go to. Uh, but we don't become more like Jesus by trying really hard. There, there's three things we need to help us to, to become more like Jesus. One, right narratives. That we, we believe the right story and the right narrative about God and about ourselves, who we are, and about the world. Um, the second is right practices, things that help us train and practice, that we're not just trying hard, we're training and building our spiritual and our, our, our emotional muscles in some sense, um, and that we need right community, those people around us that help us to live out and call us to be what, what God has made us to be. Um, this semester with InterVarsity, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount at Sonoma State and Cal Maritime and a few other campuses around the, around the in, our, in our area. Um, and one of the things that it's really done is it's challenged our narratives about God and ourselves. Um, Jesus has some really powerful things to say that kind of challenge the way that we think. So we'll jump into that together. Um, so in a minute when we get to the scripture, we're going to be entering Matthew chapter 5 with Jesus still on the early end of his ministry, still pretty new. And he looks out over this crowd of people who are just following, literally following him around. <laughs> and he sits down to teach and the people who consider themselves his disciples come to hear him. And his sermon is this curious mix of familiar and challenging, of deeply ingrained, but also startling. He takes ideas that his Jewish audience is familiar with and he reinterprets them in light of God's truth. It's a very intriguing sermon. So in another book that, we've been, that I've read recently, if you can go to the next slide, it's called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. 
And in this book, which is largely, a good chunk of it is focused on the Sermon on the Mount, Willard shares three points about how Jesus teaches that I think are really informative for us today. The first is Jesus' purpose in teaching is not to give information, but to change lives. In our modern era, we value information as a commodity, but the ancient world did not. (laughs) Information by itself was useless unless it produced something, produced a change. So Jesus expects his teaching will shape his listeners, rather than just giving them an interesting thing to think about. Second, Jesus ties his teaching to the everyday experiences of his listeners, things that are familiar to them. So Jesus expects us to understand what he says and to apply it. He, he speaks to be understood <laughs> um, by people who, who want to understand him. And third, Jesus takes our prevailing assumptions about life and God and often corrects them. He's a really challenging preacher to listen to. So we're going to just get into the beginning of his sermon today. Um, we thought about doing the whole thing and decided you all didn't want to be here till next week. So just the beginning. Um, so as we listen to the beginning of this sermon, um, let's listen with an expectation that Jesus wants to change our lives in a way we can understand, starting with correcting our narratives. You can, thank you, go to the next slide. Perfect. So Matthew 5, verse 1 to 10. Uh, you can follow along in your pew Bible or we'll have stuff up on the screen, whatever you prefer. Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in this first part of his teaching, commonly called the Beatitudes, or the Blesseds, or the Blesseds, depending upon how you want to talk about it, (laughs) Jesus challenges his hearers to see from the perspective of the kingdom of heaven, rather than the perspective of the empire of Rome which is their context. And I believe this challenge stands for us today. Jesus wants us to see truth through the kingdom of heaven eyes rather than through the lens of our own nation and our own context. And I don't think either that this is meant to be an exhaustive list of who is blessed. I think Jesus is inviting us to something deeper. He's inviting us to change our understanding of what blessing is and who can receive it. These examples of blessedness are meant to challenge our deeply held beliefs about who's living the good life. So I'm going to focus on just three of these statements that I think are a challenge to some of the narratives of the nation we live in, the context that surrounds us. And they're common beliefs, they're easy to get used to, but they're opposed to life in the kingdom of heaven. So the first of the blesseds I want to look at is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I think about the phrase poor in spirit, the first thing I think of is what does it mean to be poor? And I think being poor at its essence is it's a lack of resources, whether that's monetary or spiritual resources. As Jesus gives this sermon, he's looking at a whole crowd of people who fit the description of poor very well. They are poor materially, 
they are in poverty, they are impoverished spiritually, they lack the resources to create security for themselves. And whether, even today, whether it's a family on welfare or it's someone struggling with depression, people who lack resources are at best pitied and at worst judged by many people because we value independence very highly in this country, both economic independence and the spiritual kind of independence. So economically, we're throwing our energy into making sure we don't have to rely on charity or that our children have security we couldn't have. And spiritually, we seek independence by trying to be good people, the kind of people who earn good things from God or from the universe in return. The reality is that our self-dependence is not doing us any favors because it doesn't last. Economic independence is only good for so long, at best till you die. <laughs> um, and our spiritual independence is basically just a lie. <laughs> so Jesus calls the poor blessed because he knows something that we don't know. He knows that the poor in spirit have access to all the resources of a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Those who know their dependence on God have this kingdom now, an inheritance that can't be taken away from them. Jesus knows they're blessed, even if we don't. And he points out their blessedness to remind us that the independence we put our trust in really can't bless us in any lasting way. So the second blessed we're going to look at today is blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers, at first that sounds lovely. <laughs> Yay, peacemakers, we like them. But really, we like what they produce. Them themselves, we don't always like. Because peacemakers, they risk their own welfare to bring enemies into agreement with one another. So the, in the crowd that Jesus is addressing, their only peace is subjugation. The Roman Empire brought peace by conquering people. So these Jewish crowds are waiting for the Messiah. They're hoping that they can follow God's law well enough, do good enough, that God will listen to them and send someone to rescue them from their subjugation. Somebody who wanted to make real lasting peace with the Romans would be considered a traitor <laughs> in this scenario. You don't really want to be a peacemaker with the Romans. And today we say we value peace, but our interactions with one another demonstrate deeply rooted hostility between political parties, between ethnic groups, different belief systems. We have a black and white way of approaching conflict. And in this environment, peacemakers forfeit their belonging in one group in order to make peace with another. They stand in the middle. But Jesus knows something again that we don't. He knows that these peacemakers, they're living out a deeper identity. Identity as children of God. They're children of their heavenly father because they look like him, because they are doing his work in the world in bringing people together across deep divisions. And so the third blessed I wanna look at today is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these people seem to me to get a double portion of misfortune. Not only are they enduring mistreatment, but it's because they're good people. <laughs> That's horrible. So this word for righteousness, it means internal goodness. It also means justice. So we should think internal and external right relationship um, when we hear that word. So for a Jew living under Roman occupation, their commitment to God just in itself brings them trouble, much less trying to pursue justice for themselves or anyone else. That's not something that you would do unless you wanted to die. And even today, our commitment to God or our pursuit of justice, of justice can certainly earn us enemies. And the American church often views persecution as something to be avoided. It's not very pleasant, right? 
And if we have the power to change or maintain laws in our favor, shouldn't we protect our rights? Shouldn't we protect ourselves? We spend a lot of energy fighting would-be persecutors and potential threats. And I think it's because we believe as a body deep down that security is a higher blessing than persecution. And that's just not what Jesus teaches. Here again, Jesus knows something we don't know. He calls the persecuted blessed because even in the midst of their hardship, they possess what can never be taken from them. They are also blessed because the kingdom of heaven wins in and through their suffering. It's not just a consolation prize, like, hey, your life was hard because you were righteous. Here's your consolation prize at the end, right? Um, This is actually the kingdom of heaven breaks through into the world in and through the suffering of the righteous. So there's really no circumstance that can prevent God from blessing. It's his choice. As the kingdom of heaven comes near to people, it brings into focus the deeper reality of their situation. And in the midst of that, Jesus challenges our deeply held and sometimes even deeply cherished narratives and beliefs. These Jewish crowds Jesus preached to, they had grown hardened and bitter in the face of their suffering, and their suffering was a long one. They've been oppressed by many nations, one after the other. And from that place of hardness and bitterness, they begin to look like the empire that is oppressing them. They're concerned with power. They're concerned with seeking retribution. They're convinced God will only help them if they can be good enough. And Jesus challenges their narratives about God and his kingdom. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he calls God their heavenly father, inviting them to remember the tender care that God has for them. In these first 10 verses alone, Jesus paints a picture of a kingdom that can bless anyone in any circumstance. And he focuses on the blessings of people who trust God to take care of them instead of trusting power or wealth or security. I think it's easy for us to become bitter or hardened, sometimes about much less than what had hardened the nation of Israel. Um, It's also easy for us to grow complacent, to accept the values of the nation we live in as the values of God when that's just not so. And this leads us to obsession with wealth, with image, with security, even with our own rights. We sabotage our life in the kingdom of heaven when we take on the values of the world around us instead of the values of Jesus. When we see hashtag blessed on Instagram, we're usually reading about someone's nice looking house, their perfect little family, their wonderful new job. We're told to pursue these markers of status so we too can be hashtag blessed. But Jesus challenges our narrative by revealing the blessedness of the poor, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. It's not the financially secure who are blessed, but the poor in spirit. It is not those who have the loudest voice or the best arguments who are blessed. It's those who sacrifice to bring peace. It is not the legally protected who are blessed. It's those persecuted for righteousness. So as we look at this passage, I, I have a trick question for you. I've warned you already, but where is the first command in this passage? There is none. There's no command. Actually, the first command comes later, comes after this, when Jesus says, rejoice, because you're persecuted. That's the first command. Uh, So it's powerful because these statements aren't meant to be read as commands. They're statements of blessing that are just dependent on the very person of God himself. They flow out of God's love, intention, and initiation in the world. It's his action that God chooses to bless. So these statements are actually indicatives of grace. 
uh, they demonstrate to us where God is reaching out to bless us and the world. What that means is that this blessing of God is unconditioned. There's not, no condition we have to fulfill to get it. It's a free gift. And I think often I've, I've read this passage as a list of commands, and the result is actually catastrophic for our faith. And here's why. Because if I read it as commands, God's blessings become burdens. I read it and I go, okay, am I meek enough to warrant God's favor? Or do I need to go pursue persecution so that I will know that God loves me? Um, we've turned, if we do that, we, we turn God's blessing into a burden of, am I enough to get whatever that blessing is? And I think if we bring our natural cultural narratives to this passage, we often start to worry about how to be on the inside of that line of blessing um, or what might cause us to get kicked out of it. And we start searching for the line of what will be enough to satisfy God and earn his blessing. I think that that takes our focus away from God and his character and how abundant his blessing is. And it becomes a work of human effort and volition and, and work, trying just to, in our own effort, to please God. I think in our time, we tend to think in the, in the kind of language of contract, if and then. If you build me a house, I'll pay you for it um, because you have to. <laughs> like, that's, just, that's the way it works. And if then, the conditional kind of frame. But the language of scripture and the language of grace is a totally different kind of language. It's not if then. It, it speaks in since, therefore. Since we died with Christ, therefore we know that we will live with him. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, Therefore, we know that we can have new life and freedom from sin. That's the beauty of grace that I think emerges. One of the narratives of God, the beauty of grace, is that God's love and action to bless precedes our effort and our, and our obedience. God's the one that initiates and blesses. So if we let go of our contractual narrative, this, and look back at these statements through the lens of grace, we see a really different picture emerge. We actually see that what Jesus is telling us reveals something really powerful about God's character, about, the, about his nature and the kingdom of God. And it also reveals, really, Jesus' character and identity. In the end, the, the one speaking these statements is actually the ultimate fulfillment, Jesus himself. Be, like, if we look at one of them, of just God blesses uh, uh, blessed are the merciful. Um, God blesses the merciful and, and through Jesus demonstrates true mercy for the whole of humanity. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's, he is the merciful one. If I look at meekness, Jesus is the meek one. He's the one that didn't resort to violence in the face of injustice. At any moment, he could have called millions of angels to come and, and fight against this Roman Empire, right? But he was meek and chose meekness. He is the pure one, the only one that, that was untainted by, by the, the, the sin and brokenness of the world. He's the only one that his whole life sought to please the Father, even to the point when he was like praying at the end of his life, God, if there's any other way, can we do that? And still, he said, I want to be focused and please you. So even if there isn't, I'll do it. He was the persecuted one, the one that least deserved it and got the worst that the world had to offer. And he was the one 
peacemaker, the one that reconciled the unreconcilable, the only one that could do it. So if we look to the life of Christ, we actually see how these surprising phrases reveal a different kind of reality embodied in the person of Jesus. He is the blessed one of God. And those that mourn, those that seek righteousness, those that show mercy participate in the blessing of Christ and his kingdom. So the reality of the poor, of the mourning, and of the persecuted is passing away into blessedness, this favor from God. Jesus isn't giving us then a list of commands. He's challenging our narratives about what blessedness is and revealing himself, God, and the nature of the kingdom. So our response then is, it, to me, this is such a relief. Our response isn't to buckle down and be meeker. Um, sure, being meek is good, but my, my, result, my, my response to this isn't, oh, I got to go try to be meeker. It's to proclaim a joyful amen. This is good news. This is the nature of God's kingdom that these people are blessed. That Jesus speaks to this crowd and says, you, you who nobody would think is blessed, you are favored by God. There's an amen. We, we just affirm the reality revealed in Jesus. And we let our, as we let ourselves be shaped by that reality, we start to live differently because we live from a different kingdom that makes us different. And that leads to misunderstanding. So as Jesus continues in verse 11, he actually shifts the way he's speaking. And he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before, in these kind of blessed statements, Jesus is speaking to, blessed are those that do this. But then he shifts to you, and he's speaking to the crowd and to the disciples, and I think ultimately to us. He says, this is who you are. Like the prophets, we operate out of a fundamentally different worldview. We understand, we, and we get that on a human level. When we look at cross-cultural conflict, or uh, if you've ever been in a place where somebody came from another culture and interacted with you with a different set of values, or you went someplace that was totally different, and there's conflict that arises because we've been, we have a different underlying set of values. We've been shaped by different history and land, uh, different narratives, and that causes conflict. It causes judgment and even persecution. Um, I think on a, on a kind of surface level, one of the places that we've seen this, um, this isn't as, the, as deep a value, but we, we, as part of our InterVarsity work, have gotten to go on a couple of mission trips to Bulgaria and take some students with us. One of the times that we went, we hosted a cultural exchange program. And one of the nights we watched, uh, or we were talking about folk heroes, uh, as kind of talking about some of the values that underlie our cultures. And as part of that, we watched the movie, one of the Superman movies. And the Bulgarians' response was so surprising. Um, and it was, it was pretty intense. Their response was full of judgment and disdain. Afterwards, as we talked about it, they're like, of course American superhero would be all-powerful and have no real weaknesses. Of course it would be black and white and have no, uh, and just be all triumphalistic. Like, oh, of course he wins. Um, and they, they, they went on to share about their folk hero, Heter Petter, a clever Peter. And they told us about him, and it's basically this guy that's just a normal guy, but he always outsmarts all these people in power and makes them look stupid. And, and, and they were like, that's our cultural hero because our, our culture, we have been taken over by and oppressed by so many different empires that, that there's this hero that like figures out the way around that system of power. 
so it was, in some sense, it was kind of silly, but in, 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 even in a simple sense like that, there was real tension that came out in the different values that kind of clashed in that moment, the cross-cultural nature of it, right? How much more should we expect tension when we live from an entirely different world, from an entirely different set of values altogether? We should expect to encounter conflict as we follow Jesus. And sometimes it's a sideways glance or a look of confusion or just a comment made somewhere. Other times it can be deeply painful, coming from a place that we don't expect. But in those moments, Jesus says, you're blessed, even in the midst of conflict and persecution. The kingdom of heaven belongs to us, and we have a reward that cannot be taken away. So as our countercultural narratives lead to this countercultural way of life, it brings hard things our way, but it also brings good things to the people around us. God makes himself known in part through us and through the lives that we lead as people who choose to follow him. So on the next slide, we have the last bit of our scripture this morning. And Jesus continues in his sermon, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus gives us two statements of our identity and purpose in this passage. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So his first example is salt. And salt has a particular way of interacting with the world, right? We've all experienced salt. <laughs> it enhances flavor. It preserves things. It has some healing properties. Um, salt does this because of what it is. If it were not, if it were to not do these things, it would not be salt. Salt that is not salty is not salt. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying here, right? But Jesus declares that we are salt, and so it must be that we bring a different flavor, that our presence in the world is noticeable. And similarly, we are a light that can't be hidden. If you build a city up on a hill, you can't just cover it with a blanket so people can't see it as they pass by, right? It's obvious to everyone who gets close enough that there is a city on that hill. And nobody would be foolish enough to hide valuable light once a lamp was lit. The culture Jesus is speaking into used oil lamps. And so you're not gonna waste your oil by lighting a lamp and putting it under something so no one can benefit from its light. That doesn't make any sense. And I think um, for us, two weeks ago, maybe gave some of us a glimpse into the value of light. That's something I usually take for granted. Um, we were driving home from my parents' house on the coast right after they had lost power, driving into Sonoma County while everyone else was driving out wondering what we were doing. <laughs> um, and we get, we get off the freeway into Katadi, and it was just pitch black. I'm like, I think the power's out, Troy. <laughs> like, it just feels so very dark. <laughs> and, and we drove, and we're kind of wondering, will our house have power? And sure enough, the power's on, like, right when our streets, like, right at the beginning of our street, the power was on. We're like, yay. Um, but at any rate, so as we kind of val we, we kind of take light for granted, we're used to the ambient light of just, you know, other houses, of street lamps, of signs. And so without all of that, the one flashlight we're using, it becomes very valuable, right? We wouldn't consider wasting the batteries by hiding it under a bowl during an emergency. 
So similar, similar to what Jesus is saying here. And so as Jesus' followers shine out in a dark world, he's just making this statement, it isn't possible to hide the light. And what a comfort that is to me when I feel like I'm falling short, when I feel like my witness to who Jesus is is not good enough. <laughs> um, Jesus speaks something like this to me, city on a hill cannot be hidden. It challenges my deeply held belief that witness is about being perfect. If I can be a perfect person, everybody will be interested in Jesus. That's not true, first of all, <laughs> um, and also not possible. So even in my weakness, in my brokenness, I can shine forth light. I can give a new flavor in the world around me. In fact, the way we deal with our brokenness is often a more powerful witness than just doing things right all of the time. So for example, one of the most important values we teach our college students in InterVarsity is conflict resolution. It sounds really boring. <laughs> it's so important because a community that can work through conflict, deep conflict, and remain in community with one another, that those people are like a lamp that shines for miles in the environment that we live in, where people just have a conflict and cut someone off, right? So Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. These are identities, they're purposes, they're something that Jesus has declared to be true. We can't get rid of it. We will cause others to glorify God, both from our places of healing and from our places of brokenness, because when God is at work somewhere, it's obvious for the world to see. So in the first section, we saw how Jesus said um, the, these blessed statements. They were unconditioned gifts of grace. They're free. But now in this section, we see how the demands of grace are unconditional. Jesus makes a statement that, that touches our, the very identity. He doesn't say, yeah, you, you guys should be salt sometimes. Um, and sometimes act like light. He's like, no, you are. He makes a statement of being and identity. He says, this is who you are now. You are salt and light in the world. And though we are blessed freely, we are obligated to take on this new identity and purpose and function in the world. We are salt and light. So we take on both the blessedness and the obligations as we take on Christ himself. And we don't have to strive to be more of, uh, and this is kind of the new narrative for us, that we don't have to strive to earn this blessedness from God. But we do have to live our lives with a new purpose, listening and directed by God, just like Jesus himself did. Christ has done this for you. You are blessed. He has declared his favor for you. Therefore, that's the sense, therefore, go and light up the world, give it flavor, and jump right into the cross-cultural conflict that might land you at the mercy of the worst the world has to give. I think though, often, as a, as a Christian though, is when I study this passage, often our first response is to run to this and worry about, oh, have we lost our saltiness? Is, can you gain, lose salvation? Am I on the inside or the outside of this line? And I think we spend too much time worrying about that line and not enough time living in the kingdom. I think Jesus is far more concerned with what and who we will be as we live in the kingdom than the line of the in and out. As Jesus continues his sermon, he actually gives a whole bunch of examples of what that looks like. He, he says, in the kingdom, we're going to take God's law seriously. So the next section, he starts saying, you've heard it said this. You've heard it, you've heard it said, don't kill people. Um, but I say to you, don't even hate them in your heart. 
Um, don't speak poorly about them. He takes and he drives them from this external thing to an internal thing. And then he says, he, he goes on and he says, don't just do that. Look to the best interests of others before yourself. And, and keep going. Let's keep going. Love your enemies. Pray for those that, that persecute you and hate you. Love them. And then he, he looks to our spiritual practices and he says, don't do these things just to look a certain way. Do this. Here's how to direct it to God. Here's how to pray. Here's how to give. Here's how to do all these different things that are going to help you actually become like my Father in heaven. He tells us to resist the power of money in our lives. He, he asks us to correct fellow believers gently, um, leaving judgment to God. And he tells us to choose who to emulate based on the fruit that comes out of their lives. And eventually, at the end, he says, take seriously my words. He's like, build your life on these things. And if you build your life on it, uh, you'll stand. I just want to close us this morning um, with just a reminder that we enter the kingdom of heaven through a change of narrative, through a change of belief. We enter the kingdom of heaven when we, when we recognize ourselves to be part of God's story, when we accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness as the only way to life with God. That's how it begins. But when we enter the kingdom, we bring many other deeply held beliefs with us, some of which honor God and some of which don't. So in some ways, our cultures, our families of origin have equipped us to experience God. In some ways, they've made it hard to recognize God. That's true for all of us. And see, so seeing the world through kingdom eyes requires Jesus to challenge the false narratives that we still carry around with us, even as we try to follow Jesus. As our narrative about blessedness and belonging and our purpose in the world are changed by God's truth, we will look more and more like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why the story that we believe matters. New life starts with our deeply held beliefs and it ripples out into our actions and into our communities. And so that raises the question, well, how do we internalize and start operating out of these fundamentally different beliefs? And I think that this requires us to be rooted in God's story, to be grounded in his narrative. We have to allow scripture to shape our beliefs rather than taking scripture and shoving it into the things we already think we know about the world. Um, as Paul says, let yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I think practically we can pursue this renewal of our mind and our beliefs in, in these three ways. There are more, but I'm choosing these three today. <laughs> um, so the first is to learn God's story. And this can take a long time. A lot of times my students will say, well, I just want to know more about the Bible. I'm like, well, start reading it and keep going for 10 years. <laughs> and you'll be getting somewhere. Right? Like, it just takes time. Just start. Right? So being familiar with what the scriptures say, even if we don't totally understand everything, is okay. Um, God is walking with us on a journey. Um, we can learn God's story through watching trusted friends live out their faith, people who we see the fruit of God's kingdom in their lives. We can watch how they live out their faith. We can have real discussions about God, the actual questions we have about him. We all have questions about God and his kingdom and how it works um, and who God is and who we're to be. Having real discussions about those questions um, and being honest with them is another way to um, learn God's story. Um, second, we need to confess and repent when we become aware of beliefs that are at odds with God's truth. 
Um, I firmly believe that until the day I die, I am still eligible to find out that I'm thinking something wrongly <laughs> about God, right? Like I don't, if there was a human being who had a perfect understanding of God, God would not be God. <laughs> um, so I think we need to be willing to confess and repent when we encounter those places in our life. Oh, I've always thought this, but Jesus is really challenging me that that's not how God sees it. Um, can I confess and repent and, and get behind God's truth? Um, and third, we need to live out what we learn or else everything we learn is worthless. <laughs> it just stays up in our head and it's not coming out in our life. So I'm going to close um, with Jesus' words from the end of his sermon on the mountain. It's on the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, because this is what Jesus says about, about living out his words. And so we have skipped quite a few things that Troy summarized <laughs> and Jesus continues. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks that you bring a kingdom where the least are blessed, where the people on the margin have your favor, God. Thanks that your kingdom um, is like that, and it's a, it's a work that just comes out of who you are. So to that, we say amen. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and the way your kingdom is. And Jesus, we pray in the same way, would we be salt and light? Would we, would we believe what you say to be true, to internalize it, God, and live out of it in a way that brings life and grace and meaning to the world around us? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Video, okay, uh, we have a, if you can turn your attention to the screen, we just have a video to honor those that have served as veterans.
issues and conflicts, countless lives have been lost in the preservation of freedom. We remember their memory and the cause for which they paid the highest price. Jesus, we just pray, would you make us salt and light this week as we go out? Thanks for those that have served that we have the freedom uh, to worship you here. Amen. <laughs>